0: Hi and welcome. Today I'm talking with Peter Kniechny. He is the owner and editor of Medievalist.net as well as the owner of Medieval Warfare magazine. In this podcast I talk to academics, authors, amateurs, students, scholars, and editors of magazines. As you know, not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now we're jumping into some medieval history, eh? Today I'm talking with Mr. Kniechny. So would you mind... Sharing what your topic is today?
1: Yeah, I want to talk about like the Mongols in the Middle East. Topic not too many people know about. Something I, I wound up getting interested in. And it goes back to the early 2000s when there was the United States invasion of Iraq. And there was all these reports saying, well, this is the uh, worst uh, invasion of Baghdad uh, since the Mongols, you know, because like, they were running off numbers like, oh, you know, you know, everyone was killed, or two million people were killed. It, it got my interest, so I started doing the research in that. And there's been relatively few books that would happen, like the Mongols in the 13th century. This is the uh, era of Genghis Khan and his uh, descendants and uh, world conquering, but. I wanted to take a look at that kind of story, and, and I found really fascinating things that were happening at this time, where you have the Mongols coming in. Where there's also the Crusaders, um, the rise of the Mamluks in Egypt. So it was a, been a little fun. So I've been doing kind of research off and on for years and years since. And like people say, well, you have a book; it's in you. But uh, I, I somehow I've been way too busy to to get around to that. But I, I still look and read uh, about it.
0: Perfect. And I guess have you touched this topic on your own projects? And if so, do you want to mention a little bit of the project that you're working on now?
1: Uh, well, like, the two things that keep me as my day job is I'm the owner and editor of Medievalist.net, which is kind of like the largest online portal for any information used articles about the Middle Ages. And I've been doing that since 2008. And uh, four years ago, I also took on the job as the editor of Medieval Warfare magazine. And so that's a print magazine based out of the Netherlands. So I get to do, you know, a lot of military history in that, a lot about crusades. And mostly my job with those is get other people to do work. So I slowly have been doing some, you know, writings on that. Uh, I've given a conference paper before about the conquest of Baghdad in 1258. And I kind of hope to do more. But yeah, I get this, I have this fun life of, you know, reading lots and lots of articles about the Middle Ages.
0: Yeah, and you have that particular fascination for the Mongols. So do we want to start sort of at the beginning of your topic and go from there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, so the 13th century, you see the rise of Genghis Khan and the uniting of the various uh, Mongol tribes and spread out and quickly start, like, conquering their neighbors and developing this empire. And so uh, my research kind of starts off with counters into the Middle East and starts by fighting an empire called the Quasimerians. They drive the Quasimerians into the Middle East in what's left of them. And then Mongols are kind of on the outskirts where they conquer or basically take over or oversee various kinds of kingdoms. Like, so the Armenians would be subject to the Mongols by the 1240s. Various parts of Iran would be subject to the Mongols. But there's a point where there's three brothers, uh, Mange Khan, Kublai, and Hulagu Khan. And Mange is the ruler at the time. He sends Kublai to conquer China, And Hulago, he sends to the Middle East, and his idea was, you are to conquer everything from Afghanistan all the way to the Nile River. That is your kind of mission. And so this happens in the 1250s, that he kind of sends this... Army It's kind of a slow movie. It takes a, a couple of years just to get them going. But it is like hundreds of thousands of soldiers that are put into place that with their first objective is to defeat these Ismailis that are, have mountain strongholds in Iran. The idea was also to subjugate the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, as well as conquer Syria, Cairo, everything like that. And the, I think like the idea was, well, we'll do it by force if we have to, but they were always kind of hoping that they would just surrender. But this huge army does invade, and it takes a couple of years to kind of conquer Iran, and then they decide again to move against Baghdad, against the Abbasid Caliphate.
0: So now we know who Genghis Khan is in history— but back then, was his name, you know, scary to them? Had they heard? Did he have a reputation?
1: Yeah, the Mongols certainly gain a quick reputation as quite horrible people among the, a larger threat. There were whole cities in Central Asia that were destroyed and everyone killed or enslaved so they even the quasimerian empire that they they fought against was reduced to almost nothing like the last group was just a band of mercenaries that were traveling around the middle east so there was quite a lot of fear you know every kind of leader that everyone else who fought against these just weren't good people or they weren't tough but we're going to beat the mongols even the Abbasid caliphate you know is that they didn't take it as seriously as they should have. You know, there's uh, one point where the Mongols and the Caliphate both have alliances with the ruler of Mosul. And uh, the the Mongols tell him, all right, we want you to start preparing uh, ships. We want you to get a fleet ready. Uh, meanwhile, he gets another message from the Abbasid Caliphate saying, we want to get musicians ready for us. And ruler of Mosul is like, oh, you know, pity the caliphate, you know, like you compare these letters, so pity the Abbasid caliphate.
0: (laughs) You've mentioned that Genghis Khan and the brothers, they wanted to take over all this land. Do we know why they want to take land? Is it just because they wanted the land or are there other reasons?
1: Yeah, the Mongols had a view that they should be the rulers of the earth. This is something that emerges in the steppe culture of Eurasia, the giant steppe where they have all these kinds of different peoples. And they kind of emerged that, you know, there should be one person that rules the world as one person rules in heaven kind of aspect. And there was particular hatred against people that, say, lived in farming or cities and things like that. Like, Mongols didn't have very much... Used for that kind of agrarian lifestyle, they were nomadic. So they would actually commit genocide against many peoples and have this idea of ruling. They even sent letters to the Pope demanding that he come in person to uh, subjugate himself to the Mongol Khan. So they had this worldview where they should rule and they would kind of play off like where they would invade one country conquer it and then use that as a staging post to invade another one. But then incorporate defeated peoples would also be incorporated into the Mongol army. So it was very interesting how they kind of developed where they had like a very multicultural force. They would have Chinese engineers, which they actually brought on their campaign to lead the siege machinery against Iran, against Baghdad, things like that. And, you know, we're talking thousands of people that, you know, they were involved in that. But they were very much a world conqueror uh, society. So,
0: And I know you love the warfare part of it. So let's get down to that. So what were some of the tactics, maybe some of the armaments they had? You know, did you want to elaborate on that too?
1: Uh, the, like the Mongols, they're nomadic. They make use of horses. One thing uh, that they were very good at was kind of based on their hunts. So if a Mongol hunt would be to send out thousands and thousands of various warriors to kind of surround various animals, send your men out 50 or 60 or 70 kilometers away into groups. And their idea was to kind of push animals like herds into one spot. So um, what you would get would be eventually, you know, after like weeks of kind of planning and and for they would actually... Converge different herds of animals and beasts and stuff like that into one little area, and then they would attack. And they did this also on their campaign against Baghdad, where they split up their forces in different ways, where there was about five or six different armies coming in on Baghdad from different places. So, in the north, the south, the east, even the west. Which, in part, it drove refugees towards Baghdad itself, which would help to deplete the population also. It, it made it difficult for the Caliphate to send out their armies on like where do you attack because you have different armies coming at you at different places almost converging at the same time on the city the mongols used various kind of tactics that nomadic tribes you know uh, archers using speed tactics things like that but they were you know pretty brutal as well so i think they even flood one area to kind of catch a Abbasid army and basically drown them before they all kind of converge on Baghdad. It like a couple of days, each other, all the sides arrive. And this is something that took about like six to 12 months of planning and operational maneuvers. And they kind of launched on this siege where they're basically attacking the city from all sides. It's a very conventional siege afterwards. Again, you know, the accounts are pretty kind of vicious in like the kind of these opening stages where they are able to kind of get people to surrender And then, you know, they get people to surrender and convince others to kind of fall back uh, or to quit as well. But at one point, like, they basically um, take a lot of these soldiers and commanders that have surrendered and take them a little away from the city and then execute them. So, you know, it kind of promises. And they do this before, I think, to get rid of any kind of possible threats to the city, but leave it uh, basically exposed. And then they attack. They basically force it to surrender the idea that the mongols killed you know 2 million people and that's not true at all like the looting of baghdad while it was very destructive it wasn't by population like a massacre that doesn't seem to have existed from you know what we can kind of see in the sources you know that's a very kind of carefully staged where individual commanders of the mongol army are given like lower areas to do with it as they wish but like the residents are can be sometimes pretty canny and give the Mongols some things, but not have their houses being burned down or looted. Like, there's a great story of this um, kind of famous musician. He he was retired by then, but, you know, he was fairly wealthy. And his neighborhood is given over to a Mongol commander who arrives and all right, let's, you know, we're going to give him gifts and stuff like that. And he's basically, he rounds up everyone in the neighborhood to say, hey, all right, we're going to give him so and such and such on, on day one. On day two, we're going to double that. In uh, day three, we'll even give him some more. Uh, but we're going to keep him satiated so he doesn't smash up our houses and things like that. These are terrible stories, to be sure. But, um, you know, later on, a hundred years later, there's claims there's two million people die in this siege. The earliest claims put it at tens of thousands. So, Kulagu Khan writes a letter to the king of France claiming he killed 200,000 people. So he's boasting in that. So even stories like, you know, Baghdad's libraries were looted and burned. That's not true at all. A lot of the material was sold and bought off and put into new libraries. But Baghdad's culture and intellectual activity remains quite strong during the years of like the Mongol rule of Baghdad.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a lot of misinformation, I think, when it comes to them. And I also wanted to know so they conquered different lands and different peoples, different cultures. Did they use their technologies to keep um, attacking? like have they adapted some technologies in their warfare?
1: Yeah, you could definitely see it with the siege siege works, uh, especially making use of like uh, engineers out of China. They certainly you know would have a lot of the armies wouldn't be Mongols but would be of other people. The Mongols were very good at developing administrations for the kind of subject peoples where they could make use of their talents and they could also make use of resources and things like that. The Mongol army, being a nomadic army, has its own challenges, especially when it comes to keeping horses fed and watered. And that's actually usually how the biggest difficulty for them is logistics especially going into Syria, they only have a limited amount of time. If you're thinking like a typical Mongol soldier has up to 10 mounts with him, so you could have literally like hundreds of thousands of horses that all need to be fed and watered, and it really kind of limits the Mongol campaign. So they often have to make use of like auxiliary troops to do a lot of their fighting.
0: They're nomadic and they have all these horses. That was a big part of their warfare. How did they use horses to their advantage? What was sort of the reason they use horses the most?
1: You have the kind of speed and mobility. You could move armies 30 or 40 kilometers a day, which can be far faster than like an army on foot. On the battlefield, Mongols, cavalry would come in, to have their horses go full tilt for a while, where they could use like archery tactics, where they're firing arrows from a distance, uh, wheel back, return back to their side. Then jump onto new mounts for fresh and keep that kind of fighting going so often counts of war say in europe and things like that they find it really difficult to engage the mongols in kind of hand-to-hand combat like the mongols are just withering them down with arrows without them having really chance to fight back and so that was one of the keys to their victories and this is very common with steppe warfare so and it was one of the biggest challenges and it's really the only ones that are able to defeat the Mongols are the Mamluks, who are also a steppe people. These are actually, Mamluks are uh, named after the slave soldiers in the Middle East. A long tradition within the Islamic world of having slaves become soldiers. They get manumitted, uh, freed, but still serve in the military. By the like, 13th century, a lot of these were coming from the steppe. And they also had this nomadic ability to ride and use cavalry tactics. And they're the ones that are able to hold off the Mongols from uh, conquering Syria as well as in in Egypt. so.
0: So you've mentioned a little bit about the landscape. So were there challenges for them with the landscape when it came to having these nomadic horses and these nomadic peoples running through?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. With your horses and things like that, you really have to be based in steppe lands. So even once they conquer Baghdad, they literally have to leave it to officials in the city to kind of govern themselves with a couple of Mongol overseers. The Mongol forces, would they would have been based where roughly is right now, Azerbaijan, which is a good kind of area to be for raising horses and things like that. And they really have to stay within that area with most sort of their troops for most of the time. And then if they do make these attacks, campaigns that have to be run fairly quickly they can't stay kind of think of you know as i said like if you have hundreds of thousands of horses drinking from a river that river dries up really quickly <laughs> so the main mongol challenges when they were trying to con- conquer syria was they could go in and capture damascus and aleppo and the other cities but they couldn't maintain their troops and so um they go in in 1260 they conquer all, pretty much all of syria But then Hulagu returns back to the Azerbaijan area, leaves about 10,000 men behind, and they are defeated by the Mamluks, who regain everything on the Syria. And then what you see is this kind of border warfare between the Mamluks and the Mongols that goes on for another, you know, 50 odd years.
0: And since they were nomadic peoples, did they have scribes that followed them? Or do we have more sources with the people that were conquered?
1: Well, we've definitely more more sources about the people who are conquered. Like, there are some Mongol sources, but there are fairly few. Meanwhile, like, we have plenty of accounts from, say, chroniclers in the Middle East or, like, chroniclers associated with the Crusades that talk about the Mongols. So, yeah, most accounts are by their victims, which, you know, again, makes probably why the Mongols get such a bad reputation, so.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, the Mongols swept through the countrysides and... Do we have an idea of the time it took for them to go from where they began and how far in they got to their campaign?
1: Some of these campaigns take years of movement and planning, but a lot of that can also be slowed down by feasting <laughs> and, and doing the politics. When it comes to you know a, a campaign, like you, it could take a few months to maneuver, say, an army that's based in Iraq into, say, Syria, Towards Damascus, but troops could be moved fairly quickly, and uh, and communications could be uh, far quicker because you can kind of travel, you know, send horses, send pigeons as well, to send messages. So there was always good kind of lines of communication. But yeah, it is, it's interesting, like you know, how fast can armies move in the Middle Ages? Is that's always one of the kind of interesting questions. And uh, cavalry, you command an army, you know, fifty or sixty thousand of that. There's a lot of planning, and logistics just into moving them around. So,
0: And what is maybe or what are the biggest wars that we know of? And can you just sort of run us through what happened and you know how they won or how they lost?
1: Oh, uh, we have various accounts of, say, even the Mongols in Europe. Uh, there are uh, attacks into Poland and Hungary, in Romania as well. they are kind of very famous battles there uh, where they... Basically, the king of the Hungarians, wipe out his army, and then take control of that whole kingdom for several months. So the saddest things I've read are these accounts of people that are trapped in Hungary trying to get away from Mongol armies. We have Mongol accounts into Mongol conquest of China at the time. The Mongols try, they attempt to invade Japan twice, Uh, and there are famous accounts of uh, Mongols attempting to land on the shores of Japan with huge fleets. and then you also have internal Mongol warfare. As this is happening, the Mongol Empire splits into four different khanates. The most famous one is the Yuan Empire of Kublai Khan's the Yuan Empire controls Mongolian China. And then you have another based in Central Asia. You have another based in what's called the Golden Horde in Russia. You have Hulagu's khanate becomes known as the Ilkhanate. So, and they rule the Middle East. And you have this, you know, you have massive battles between the Golden Horde and the Ilkhanate. As they're fighting for the control over lands that are very good for grazing and things like that, so sometimes the accounts are, are a little quiet on details. You'd love to know, like, two hundred thousand people met on this. You'd love to hear greater accounts of what happened, but there's certainly a lot of warfare. This is during the 13th century, is probably the you know century of of the rise of the Mongol empires, and by the uh, 14th, those empires are all kind of collapsing or merging into something different, like the Ilkhanate following the Islamic path and become more urbanized. So by like the early 14th century, we can consider them like a nomadic army. They're just more of a large semi-Islamic world. So... But they're all very kind of quite interesting. Yes, I've done lots of kind of looks at different kinds of battles. It's interesting where like there, there's at one point uh, in the early 14th century that they've almost conquered Damascus. There's just like one fortress holding out and the scene is almost the whole city around it is just kind of in ruins. And there's this fighting that's taking place within the ruins around, and they're just trying to set up siege machines to take out this fortress. And at night, the defenders would come out and destroy the siege machines and And uh, yeah, like a very fascinating thing where the Mongols are almost able to conquer. If they're able to conquer Egypt, we probably have seen the rest of Europe also fall, uh, just because there's even the Ilkhanate was looking towards attacking Europe at a point. Like they, you can kind of sense that they were kind of wondering, you know, what the King of France they were thinking he could be a challenge uh, to, <laughs> in their kind of worldview, someone that they had to kind of overthrow. So, but yeah, it's, and, you know, it's it's a fascinating kind of time of history.
0: What did they use for this warfare? Like, what were some of the main elements of their weapons and their weaponry?
1: Uh, Like, in in battles, they would often, yeah, be arrows. They had various different types of arrows, how much penetrating power, if you wanted to make noise, things like that. Um, There are accounts of that. Like, in siege warfare, we get the use of what they call NAFTA, which is a fiery substance. Uh, This is almost a precursor to gunpowder. The Mongols are able to kind of make use of that during their siege of Baghdad. Like once they run out of you know stones to throw, they start cutting down the trees, the palm trees, and tossing them into the city as well. So uh, siege warfare can be you know fairly typical across cultures. Once you learn how you know certain tactics being fairly effective, they applied around the world. But what the Mongols you know could is they had the resources to maintain sieges. There's one that goes on for about 25 years which is a siege of a Ismali fortress up in the mountains of uh, Iran. And basically they can't take this castle. So they wind up just holding a siege for 25 years until they run out of food and resources. And yeah, sieges siege is always kind of interesting. There's always, each one has its own challenges. And it's interesting to see what various people try to use to defend against these sieges. So yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And do we know what kind of armor they were wearing and how effective it was?
1: There's not really good accounts of, like, what the armor is, especially for soldiers. There would be, like, leather, but silk and things like that. You know, it's not something I've looked at too carefully. There's uh, silk being that kind of where, like, you get a shot, like, the silk won't rip, right? As opposed to, like, you know, regular cloth. It will go through, but a silk, that way you almost say, you know, oh, I'm going to pull it out. You know, the blade will kind of come out without tearing up the insides of you, so...
0: You mentioned earlier how we had accounts from some of the crusades. So how did that happen? How did they meet or, you know, what kind of contact did they have?
1: Yeah. So in like 1259, 1260, when the Mongols move into Syria, they're also moving into areas of the crusader states. This causes quite the panic right away. Among the various crusades, there was fears that they would have to abandon nearly everything. There's only one real clash, which is a town called Isidin, where a Mongol army reaches it and attacks and conquers it. And basically the crusader leadership hops onto boats and you know, flees to an island nearby to escape, and that puts a lot of fear. So the, the Crusaders at that time ally with the Mamluk, let the Mamluk army pass through Crusader territory unmolested to confront the Mongols. That's the kind of a time where we have Crusaders, say, Muslim alliance. After that, the Mongols do see the Crusaders as potential allies against the Mamluks. And they try repeatedly to send envoys into Europe to form an alliance, which doesn't get very far most of the time, because the Christian leaders in Europe are very fearful of the Mongols because of the attacks in Hungary and Poland and things like that. Uh, they were very wary about cooperating. But there was an attempt in 1281 where you have Prince Edward of England, he had later becomes King Edward I, he actually arrives in the Crusader States, and he tentatively plans out a joint campaign with the Ilkhan ruler. They will both kind of invade and attack. What my research looked at, it looks like Edward gets played by a Mamluk spy who pretends to convert to Christianity, gets his year, and he convinces Edward to send his armies south instead of north, it is south to go and attack a castle that wasn't particularly important instead of marching his troops north to meet with the uh, Mongols as they're coming from northern Syria. The Mongols eventually have to return. The crusaders return back to Acre. Uh, This spy then basically tries to assassinate Edward in the middle of the night (laughs) and almost does. Uh, This is a a very close call for him. So that was the most hardworking attempt to have a common goal, but uh, afterwards, like, the Mongols really do try to convince the crusaders to fight with them against the Mamluks, and this really prompts the Mamluks to take out the crusader states, and then the 1270s, 1280s, and finally in 1291, they conquer the crusader strongholds and finally defeat them at Acre, and then the last crusader state are gone. And that was basically they were worried about their flank if they were going to be attacked by the Mongols. Yeah, so it's interesting kind of uh, challenges that they have there. Afterwards, you can still talk about, like, crusades being planned out and say, well, we can try and get used to the, the Mongols in the Middle East. Or they would call them the Tatars or, like, they would kind of, you know, lump them in with legends of, you know, Christian rulers in the East and see it as a possible way of converging on Cairo and things like that. But they were never able to develop this uh, alliance to take out the Mamluks.
0: So you were saying how the Mongol Empire basically split off into four main groups. How long did it take before it started dissipating?
1: Well, the the Ilkhanate, by around year 1315, the uh, Mongols and the Mamluks finally make peace. And about 10 years later, the Ilkhanate starts to crumble from within. Basically, one ruler dies, his child's too young, so it starts a bunch of conflicts. By 1330s, it's gone. So they're kind of the first one to go. Golden Khanate that's kind of based in what's kind of like Russia today. That lasts to the 15th century as a power, but eventually you have the kind of rise of Moscow that supplements it. The Yuan dynasty runs into the 14th century and then gets overthrown into the Ming dynasty. And you kind of see like slowly but surely the threat of the Mongols dissipates. It's interesting that, like, you know, like today we have like Mongolia and they certainly have a lot of pride in Genghis Khan, but uh, yeah, I don't think where anyone's very worried about Mongol attacks these days, so.
0: And these days, what are some of the cultural traces that we see? Is the language still similar? Have they left a mark in other landscapes, maybe?
1: Well, they certainly left a large mark in kind of destruction of the Mongols. And in the sense, there are these kind of great towns like Samarkand that were considered one of the leading places in the medieval world that are, were totally decimated. Um this is a time of a lot of cultural transference. Uh, you know, we have like Chinese scholars going into Baghdad, into the Ilkhanate. We have a lot of connections in trade and things like this. this is The Mongol Empire it allows for merchants and travelers uh, to cross. That's why we have Marco Polo being able to come from Italy all the way to China, is this kind of system that's in place. And there's this flourishing of ideas and technology you know that we come across in you know printing and gunpowder and uh, even money the idea of printed money paper money comes in from china as attempted in iran for a time in the 14th century so you have that for a long time a lot of national histories have really portrayed the mongols as an enemy as, as a people that really just wrought destruction and that's not quite true, though. You know, there are a lot of wars. They also brought in new way of thinking, a new kind of governments, and brought in more connections for various peoples in a way of, you know, globalization <laughs> within the Mongol world. So, uh, so it's very interesting ideas. Uh,
0: yeah, side note, the Mongol Empire also reminds me a bit of Rome. You know how Rome just grew and grew and grew and then it uh, grew itself. It feels almost like the Mongol Empire also kind of uh, grew itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's certainly like certainly the largest land empire in history. It's interesting, like, it produced a lot of fear and trepidation, which is in many cases quite justified, right? You know, reading some of the accounts, it's uh, just terrible of atrocities committed and then as yeah, a historian, you kind of have to balance that out with this is also the, you know a time that once the Mongols did conquer, this can be a, a bit of a renaissance for many of these places. Under the Ilkhanate, the center of the scientific world would have been based in a place called Maraga, which is in, in, in present-day Iran, and this uh, astronomy observatory that the Mongols used their patronage to bring in scientists and scholars from around the mongol world would converge here one of their main projects was to study the movements of jupiter so that was their idea is we're going to plot out how does Jupiter move around the solar system? And it was a, obviously a 25, 30-year project to figure that out. But it, that was arguably in the 13th century. The center of learning was this place in Moraga. It's kind of famous accounts of that. Today, you know, mostly just that place is a pile of rubble. But at once it was where all the scientific instruments, best places to go. So it contributed a lot of cultural, intercultural learning and practices. So
0: so I guess at the end of the day, the thing we should remember is not just the conquering, but maybe their imprint that they left.
1: Yeah, you. I think you have to take a holistic view of these things. It, it certainly, it makes it a fascinating story, you know, and yeah, I hope that I can, I tell it more if I can in like Medieval.net and Medieval Warfare, but yeah, the, the only reason you want to look at history, you want to see it from different perspectives and, you know, hopefully you can gain appreciation of different points of view, so.
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd like to ask this question. so if you had a time machine, what period of history would you be interested in?
1: Um, I certainly would love to see myself in 14th century London. <laughs> they, you know I've, I've done a lot of research on that, and just to be able to walk around the streets of that city, I'd love to like if I, if I had a chance to meet, it would be probably like you know, to talk with various chroniclers. Uh, Matthew Paris would be an interesting person, the uh, 13th century English historian. I could, you know, uh, I'd love to not necessarily be at the great moments of history, but uh, just to explore the world as I could. Maybe, you know, probably maybe around 1300 would be kind of fascinating time because I think you could wander about quite a bit uh, and travel and see the world. So,
0: yeah, that seems pretty fascinating around that time. Yeah. So I just wanted to say thank you for coming here and talking to us about Mongols. And of course, any other type of medieval history, people will absolutely have to go and visit your website.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've got a great kind of band of supporters with medievalist.net. Um, uh, we have a Patreon for that. And I think that's where we're kind of going with the website is to come from a patronage model, from a kind of advertising model. You know, with Medieval Warfare, we just actually reached uh, 2,000 uh, subscribers to the magazine, which has been really good because it's been hard to get in stores of late, uh, just with the pandemic and <laughs> everything being closed down. So I'd love where we will do kind of share this. Uh, so um, uh, again, you know, if you read us on the site or with the magazine, uh, you know, thank you so much for supporting and hopefully, you know, we can reach out more to the wider public too.
0: Absolutely. And I will have all the links in the show notes to... Uh, the website and the magazine website also. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. That was really enjoyable. There are no book recommendations, but I will absolutely recommend that you visit medievalist.net. It's a great resource and a fantastic way to read about different medieval topics. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at HistoryA. You can also visit the podcast, historya.com. And if you have the time, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate this podcast. It helps people find me. Thank you for your efforts. I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and the teachers throughout the years. Without you, I definitely wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.